she said, you know, history is written by the people with the swords and the guns and not the people carrying babies in baskets. Mm-hmm. And she said, we need to tell our stories. Maybe if we tell our stories, then we can write some history too. Authentic Talks is all about authentic conversations. This show is all about growth, love, respect, success, mind, body, and spirit. If you're looking to grow and become your authentic self, then this is the podcast for you. And I am your host, Shantae. Welcome to the show. Hi, guys. I'm back. We're kicking season two off, episode two, with an amazing guest. I actually sat down and had a really comfortable conversation with this week's guest. She's amazing you guys you're gonna absolutely love her she was on ted talks she is a motivational speaker with a focus on communication she is an author as well as a teacher a mom and so much more what i really enjoyed learning about this week's guest is that she is raising us all up as women girls you guys you're not going to be disappointed in this show please get comfortable put your seatbelts on and come along for the ride please welcome eliza van court to the show thank you thank you i love your name shante it's beautiful thank you so much and there's so much that we're going to talk about who is eliza i am a speaker author and i'm a teacher And I teach an acting technique, which is called the Meisner technique, but I also have a background in political science. So I have kind of a weird eclectic background and I spend most of my time, well, I used to spend most of my time traveling throughout the country and the world, giving talks on communication and how that communication intersects with who you are and what your demographic is and workplace communication. So that's my focus. I'm also a parent and I have nephew, two sons, and one daughter, and most of them are grown up, but my youngest is uh, 16 going into his senior year of high school. Nice. Can you share with me the name of your book and what inspired you to write your book? Absolutely. So my book is actually going to be debuting by Barrett Kohler. I got the publisher I really wanted, which was so exciting. Um, And that's going to be in April of next year. And the title is A Woman's Guide to Claiming Space, Stand Tall, Raise Your Voice, Be Heard. Well, there are many, many inspirations for this book. One is my clients, obviously. The other is my life story, my personal life story. Then another one is the stories of all my sisters, all the women in my life. And the final one, which is sort of the strangest one, is what I call inspirations from conversations in the bathroom. And what that means, (laughs) so what that means is that um, whenever I give a talk or a seminar, invariably afterwards, I walk to the bathroom and I'm washing my hands after, and some woman kind of comes up to me and says, Hey, so I really loved your QA. I have a question I didn't want to ask in front of all the men. So, can I ask you this one question? And then another woman comes out of the stall and says, Yeah, I had a question like that. And I end up doing a seminar after the seminar in the bathroom or a seminar after the keynote (laughs) in the bathroom. And so I've decided that the women's bathroom is really a magical place. Um, It's a place where women will say stuff to each other they would never say anywhere else. And so I almost (laughs) called the book Conversations in the Bathroom, but my publisher didn't think everybody would get that. Oh, wow. (laughs) I love the concept behind it, the name of the book and why you wrote it. Why do you care about women and claiming space? 
Oh boy, that's a big question and an important question. I think that women really are taught to be small. And if we don't make ourselves small in many situations, we get a lot of pushback. And sometimes the pushback is a microaggression and sometimes the pushback can be violent. But either way, we get pushback. And I think it's so important for us to develop strategies to claim space and to actually say, you know what, we're half the population and we should have half the resources and we should have half the power. And so for me, this book was really a way of trying to reach women who are interested in stepping into their power, but don't really, but want to know kind of how to do it. And I think there are several rubrics in the book. So I have different ways of claiming space. And I think every woman will find something in there that really speaks to them. So uh, that was the motivation. And the other thing is I had a lot of time in my life where I made myself very small and it was hard. And for me, learning how to step into my power was transformative and something that now I'm, I have clients and they find it so inspirational when they can learn to do it. And I thought, how can I scale this? And I thought the best way to scale it is by writing a book. So, so that's what I did. That is really awesome. I absolutely love it. I know that you were on TED Talks. How did that happen? How do you get on TED Talks? <laughs> well, that was, a, that was an interesting experience. So I actually had a friend, and that's part of where the Claiming Space concept came from. I, I had a, so I had a friend who was, um, I don't know if you heard that in the background, but talk about authentic talks. My nephew just walked in the room and got freaked out of the kitchen. <laughs> so I'm sorry about that. I don't yeah, think we're on, a, we're on a podcast. Um, <laughs> we're recording. So anyway, I should probably send the kids a text. But, you know, we're in a pandemic, so sometimes right. we forget. So No worries at all. It's, that's yeah. life. <laughs> it's, it's life, man. It's life. Like, we're going to, it's just real. So um, anyway, I had a friend who was involved in TEDx Rochester, and that person said to me, you know, we're doing this thing on space. And I thought, and he said, you should really apply to be on our TED Talk. And I was, thought to myself, space? Space? How am I possibly going to say anything about space? I was thinking like stars in the sky, and <laughs> that's just not my gig. And then I thought, and he said, no, I think you really should think about it. I think it would resonate with you. So I thought about it. And suddenly I went, oh yeah, a lot of what I talk about is claiming space. So then I just applied and I said, you know, this concept that I have is about women claiming space. And I went through the interview process, which almost didn't happen because I was stuck in a snowstorm on the way to a gig. I got stuck on the highway. I'm booking over there. I got into my hotel room and literally I made the interview by less than a minute. And so that was one of those moments where I opened it up, sat there and acted all cool. But really, I was completely freaking out. <laughs> like, you guys have no idea yeah, what it like, took for me to get here. Exactly. I call, it? I'm totally calm. <laughs> I, ca I call those like it's meant to be. Yeah. 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 Like everything in life that happens, I feel like nothing happens by chance. It happens yeah. how it's supposed to. And I, and I don't mean that like, I know some people could be listening in and like, seriously, we just went through this, this and that. I'm just speaking from my own personal experience that I feel it's that way. And I think that we all have something that on the other side, later on, you look back and go, oh, it was because of this or that. 
Yeah, I see it a little differently, but but somewhat similarly. I actually have a chapter about that in my book uh, called There's No Such Thing as Time or How to Be a Time Bandit. Mm -hmm. um, How do you see uh, it? And yeah, well, the way I see it is that, well, so I had, a, I had a guy I was dating a while ago who was a lot younger than me. And I called one of my friends who's basically Yoda. And I said, Kim, I feel like I'm wasting my time with this guy because we're never going anywhere. He's so much younger than me, even though I really like him. And she said, well, that's if you believe in the concept of time. And I said, even for you, Kim, that's kind of crazy. And she said, no, 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 no. Either you stay with him and then it's not a waste of your time or you don't stay with him, but you learn what you need to learn to go on to the next person or do the next thing in a way that's better for you and that moves you forward. So the, so either way, it's not a waste of your time unless you don't learn from it. Mm -hmm. And that is the way I think of time is that the only way that you really, if a bad experience happens, that it's a waste of your time is if you don't learn from it. And if not, it's one of the most important moments on your journey because I think it's our failures that often teach us more than our successes. So mm -hmm. I think it's kind of a similar idea. Yeah, but I think so. I think yeah. it's similar, definitely, where I that everything happens for a reason, even if it is something bad. And I know a lot of people don't understand that or believe in it. Some people don't. And it's because when they're going through a very tough time, it's hard to wrap their mind around, I'm going through this and you don't understand. This is huge. I just, you know, like whatever milestone, whatever it is that they're, that's happening in their life, it's, if it's bad, they don't get why, why me? Right. It's, it's the why me thing versus yeah. how can I come through this and what, what can I learn going through yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah, but I get it because I know we've all been through tough times where it's like, oh, it's painful yeah. going through it, you know? Absolutely. You had, like, like with your mother, can you share with us what happened with her and, and is she now back in your life? I mean, like, okay, because I, I had read something that she was missing. Yeah, yeah. So um, my mother, when, I had a really wonderful mom until... I was about four, four and a half. And she was apparently, my father said she was one of the best mothers he'd ever seen. And she was an incredible woman. She was from a small little town in Pennsylvania and she moved to New York City and moved to Harlem and taught kids English. And she used to get in trouble for her principal for taking them into the park. And this was, you know, in the seventies, way before this kind of stuff, actually the sixties, before this stuff happened and mm -hmm. doing Shakespeare with them in Central Park. You know, I mean, this wow. was just, she was an extraordinary <laughs> woman and um, she was a published poet and just really a, an amazing person. And then actually her poetry came later, but then she um, became paranoid schizophrenic and she had her first break breakdown. And uh, paranoid schizophrenia is a degenerative disorder in many ways in that, especially back in the day when the treatments weren't so well, each time you would have a breakdown, when she would come back, she wasn't quite as with it as she was before the breakdown. So every breakdown brought her base, baseline a little lower. And so she just get, and she would vanish. She would vanish for months on end and then come back. And if you watch my TED Talk, you'll find that she took me legally. So I was considered a missing person and there was a national APB out on me. And she took me across the country by truck. Uh, from New York to California, from truck stop to truck stop, hitchhiking. 
And she actually ended up taking me three times, once to Texas and twice to California. Once I ended up in foster care in California. And um, that really was a formative experience for me as well. And so she, when I was pregnant with my third child, she was in Ithaca where I was living and I, she was calling me all the time, just robo calling me because she was mentally ill and it was causing me incredible stress. And one day, and my father used to say that she was almost psychic, but that, you know, she would either be so spot on with his emotional life that it would scare him or she was so off that it was just, you know, out of absolute left field, made no sense. And that was, you know, the disease, obviously. And so I got a call from her worker saying, you know, I want to, your mother is in the bathroom at the bus stop and you need, you, she wants to talk to you. And my mom had been, I had had this very weird feeling, which I knew logically was wrong, but I had this weird feeling that if my mom saw me, I would somehow catch what my baby would catch what she had, which again, I knew was irrational, but it was making it really hard for me to want to see her because mm -hmm. I just felt so protective of my baby. So, and it was early in the pregnancy, very early. And so I thought, okay, well, maybe when I get to the second trimester, you know, I just found out I'm pregnant, you know, I can see her. And she called me, she talked to me and she said, Eliza, you should come down here. I'm going to California again. And I said, mom, I can't, I'm busy. And she said, no, you're not busy, Eliza, you're lying, which was true. And then she <laughs> said, which was true. And then she said, Eliza, you don't want to see me because you think your baby's going to catch what I have. Mm. And maybe you're right. Maybe you're right. But I can't be in here anymore. I'm not good for you. And I said, no, mom, please don't go. And she said, then come down here. And I said, I can't, mom. And then she said, and this was the total switch my father used to talk about. This is not true. I'm her only child. She said, you are the most ungrateful of all of my 11 children. <laughs> Which was, oh, wow. which was, you know, absolutely. She had this fantasy that she had uh, 10 more kids from with, with Bob Dylan. And so, um, and she, and she hung up on me and she got on a plane and went to California. I mean, got on a bus and went to California and I didn't hear from her again. And then I heard from a worker who called that she was going from the hospital to a halfway house and they were driving her and they stopped. She has to stop at a gas station. And they waited, waited in the wet in the parking lot. They went into the bathroom to find her eventually, and she crawled out of a window, and no one ever saw her again. Mm. But the strangest thing that happened was that maybe one, two years later, so after about a year, I thought, man, this is longer of a vanishing than usual because she would vanish and come back. And so I wasn't that nervous when she left because my whole life was her leaving and coming back and leaving and coming back or leaving and getting a call from a hospital in Montana that they had her uh, as an involuntary admit, you know, and they had to cut her boots off because her feet were so swollen because she was not bathing, you know, all of these crazy things. And so I was used to her going and coming back. Um, but this time it was a long time. And I thought, oh, man, she's really gone this time. And I started to really, really worried about worried about her. And um, she used to write me these crazy letters when she was gone, these just pages of just gobbledygook. And it would stress me out so much. And I got, I went to my mailbox one day, I had my little babies and I went inside and I saw a letter from her and I thought, I wonder what's in this letter. And I thought, oh man, at least I know she's alive, but this is going to be an intense letter because I'm sure she's really sick. And I opened it up and there was no letter. It was just one photograph 
of her looking like she was hanging out in a warm climate with a lot of people who looked homeless, smiling at the camera. Mm. And that was it. And I thought, my mom wants me to know she's okay. Mm-hmm. And wow. she knew that she was really causing me a lot of stress. And she fell on her sword for me to not stress me out because she felt like the best thing she could do was to leave my life, which, um, you know, whether or not that's true, I think that's why she did it. And this was sort of her last act. So um, it was a very, and I've not seen her since. And I, I hired a private investigator and they said they could find anyone, but I knew they'd never find her because that's just not um, her way. She's way, if my mom doesn't want to be found, she's not going to be found. And he said, oh, don't worry, we find everyone. You can pay me when we find her. And he said, no, nope, we couldn't find her. The last location he found her at was um, the old neighborhood she used to live in with my father when she was young and um, happy and with him. And that was the last time he could trace her whereabouts. And then she just vanished. So wow. yeah, so she has been vanished for now um, almost 17 years. Wow. And I'm guessing that she is probably gone, although I have no evidence to prove this, but it is hard not knowing. Not knowing is the worst because, you know, when do you do a ceremony? When do you do you grieve or, you know, you're always grieving a little, but when do you really grieve? And when do you, you know, it's just, it's a very it's really hard. I think that closure would always be good. And I, I really feel for people who lose people in wars or who are POWs who go missing because the lack of knowing what happened, I think is, is always something that you carry around like a little pebble in your pocket. Yeah, I bet that is tough. I know that you raised your daughter, two sons and your nephew. How did that impact your parenting style? with raising four kids. Yeah, well, my nephew came into the house when he was uh, in high school. Absolutely, he's a wonderful human being. Um, how did it impact it? Well, you know, I think, so I had a stepmother who came on board, but later. I think that when you have, when you lose a parent, it does affect you. And I think that you're always, some things you sort of have to make up <laughs> because you don't have that role model. No book on saying this is how to be a parent. <laughs> exactly, exactly. You know, my aunt, who I'm still in touch with, her sister is such an involved mother. And I know my mother would have been just right there. And I think a lot of her robocalling was her sort of funhouse mirror schizophrenia way of trying to do what my aunt does in a very beautiful Italian mama kind of way. And so... Um, <laughs> that is a void because you just can't pick up the phone and say, Hey mom, when I was four, what did you do? And, and that, that's difficult. That's difficult. I mean, I, again, I do have a stepmother, Beth, who has been wonderful, but not having your biological mother uh, is something that impacts everything in your life, not just your parenting. Mm-hmm. How did you take on the feminism impact raising a daughter and two sons? How did that show show up in your life, like with them? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm an intersectional feminist in that I really believe that historically feminism is a white woman's movement. And that has hurt all of us because obviously, if, you know, not all women are white women. So if we're only empowering white women, we are only empowering a small portion of the population. And so we are not as strong as when we are all empowered together. When we, you know, when we rise up together, we rise farther and we rise higher. Yes. And we rise stronger, you know? <laughs> you I know? love it. <laughs> right? So, yes. So, you know, for me, 
that's one of my main focuses. It's like the intersection of isms with sexism. So racism is one, a big one for me. And I, I guess I would talk more about how it impacted my, I think all my kids, I mean, I consider, I think my boys would identify as feminists, although my son Jonah is so intellectual, he might, he might have an argument about what it means, <laughs> but, they, but they all are, they're feminist men in their behavior. And I, I'm really proud of that. But my daughter is, and they're also really aware of issues of social justice, but my daughter in particular, I think was impacted by it. And she has done things that are so extraordinary. I, I can't even explain it. I don't know if you looked too far into the rabbit hole of my life, but two years ago when she was in high school, she protested the casting, whitewashing casting of the school musical. And they had a blonde haired, blue eyed girl play an oppressed brown girl. And mm. my daughter wrote a letter to the paper, which was brilliant, and got a bunch of kids to sign it. And then her best friend, Prachi, who is of Indian descent, wrote a letter about all of her experiences with racism in the school district. And Breitbart picked it up. And then the Daily Stormer picked it up. And then Fox News picked it up. And it became the number one trending story on Fox News. Wow. And we ended up getting death threats, international death threats. Mm. And my daughter hold it, held firm and she actually ended up, and I can give you the link to this, um, but she ended up, we did, they did a talk at the school board where they faced the superintendent and all of the board and they basically did a class on race. And it was incredible, all five of these young activists. And it was just such a powerful thing to see. And it ended up going on to Pantsuit Nation and being picked up by the New York Times. Mm. And people were watching the link saying, this is one of the best and most informative conversations on race. Everybody should see this. So I'm incredibly proud of her. And I am too. And I have never even met her. I think that's yeah, awesome. She is so cool. And now she wants to be a lawyer and she wants to work with her. The last, the last idea, but I, I'm not sure, she, you know, it's the morphing of just how she wants to do it, but she's really interested in working with women at the border who are saying they need asylum because of sexual violence. And that's one of her her goals. So oh my she's, goodness. She's really I wanna, cool. I'm definitely <laughs> cheering her on. We need that. I love hearing about the younger generation. And these are the kids that are going to be ruling the country. And so we want one. Yeah. We want them to be like with the great mindset. That's right. You That's know, right. I know you have to definitely be so proud. I, 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 I felt like my chest was swelling up. <laughs> oh, yeah. It was swelling up in such a proud way. Like, oh, my goodness. I felt like I almost got chill bumps. You know, yeah. like in a good way, the good ones, you know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, she she checks me all the time. I mean, all the time. <laughs> She's always like, Mom, that is just so tired. You got to be kidding me. <laughs> and it's great. She knows. I mean, I was a political science major, but... She knows so much more about this stuff than I do at this point. And I'm just so inspired by her. I really am. It's, it's incredible. Wow. Well, you do talk a lot about bravery and what you really think, what it means to you. And it sounds like your daughter has embodied your message. Can you share with us a little bit about what bravery means to you? 
Well, you just gave us a really great example. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But My, I think one of the major reasons why people don't do things in their lives, why people don't actually strike off and you know, go and take chances is because they feel like they are not brave. And they see these movies of people running into a battlefield and they don't look scared. And they think, I'm not that person. And the reality is that if that is the case, if you're running into a battlefield or people are going to kill you and you're not scared, you're a psychopath. Of course mm. you're scared. You're mm. just doing it anyway. And so to me, bravery has never been about not being afraid. In fact, the most brave thing you can do is to be absolutely terrified and do something anyway. And so that to me is the definition of bravery. And then I also think bravery is about everyday life, about being brave just in your actions. You know, I'm actually pulling up a chapter on bravery in my book, but I think that the other thing is what women do every day, I think is profoundly brave. And if you'd like, I can kind of read you the very first tiny part of my bravery chapter. Absolutely. Uh, which, uh, you'll be the first to hear it. It is a rough draft. Um, but <laughs> but right. this, is, this is what it's, it's very, I'll just read the very beginning. Of oh it. my so, goodness. Uh, I'm excited. Mm-hmm. Authentic Talks is getting exclusive <laughs> information. You are. You are the first people. And my editor might kill me, but this is not the final version, guys. It's a rough draft. Um, but this is what I have. It says, women who wake up in the morning when they're tired, but get their kids to school and go to work. Women who lead Fortune 500 companies, companies that were once exclusively run by men. Women in rural and urban poverty who never went to college, yet they sacrifice for years to make sure their children can go. Women in inner cities who, leave movements, who lead movements after their children are shot by police during a routine traffic stop. Mm. Women who help Americans fly into space. Women who help their best friends fly when they're down. Women who get up after they've been assaulted. Women who stand up for other women. Women who stand up for themselves, leaving abusive relationships. Women who love who they want to love. Women who tell their daughters they can be whoever they want to be. Women who tell themselves the same. This is what fear looks like, and this is what bravery looks like. There is nothing brave about acting without fear. You're either crazy or your action doesn't warrant the grand title of bravery. I said it in my TED Talk, and I'll say it again. Bravery is not a lack of fear. Bravery is being terrified and doing what you need to do anyway. Mm. So that's the beginning of that chapter. I love it. That's a book I would read. And that's awesome. <laughs> yes, I love it. I love what you represent. You're Thank into you. communicating really well. You're a great speaker. You know that, right? I try. <laughs> you are. You're good. You're good. You're good. You know how to engage the audience and you bring them in on it. I love it. I think that the truth is the most powerful thing you can ever say. And that's why I was so attracted to doing this is when I saw authentic talks, I was like, I'm in because to (laughs) me, it's all about authenticity. Authenticity is the most powerful, engaging thing you can possibly do. Mm. Lies never are as engaging as the truth Mm. and authenticity. I agree. I definitely agree with that. Tell me about your speaking engagements. You I've seen a couple of things that you do. It looked like you actually were speaking with youth as well. Yeah, that was from Girl Up. Um, so I was really excited because Girl Up contacted me and they said, oh, we want to have you work with our people. 
and we want to have you come. And by the way, you're going to be the keynote. And last year's keynote was Kristen Gillibrand, <laughs> who ran mm. for for, uh, for president. And I thought, wow. I am, I'm so in right now. I don't even know yes. much about you. But Girl Up is a movement to advance girls' rights and opportunities to be leaders. And, and it was started by the United Nations. And it's just an incredible organization. So anyway, I was speaking there. But I speak largely to adults, although that experience was incredible. But I speak largely to adults, and I go all over the world. In fact, last year, I had my first international gig, which was in Hong Kong, which was incredible. Wow. Uh, and I, yeah, it was so exciting. And so I do, I have a couple boilerplate talks that I do. My first one is just communication. And what I, a lot of people approach communication where they get up there and they say, these are the tools that are going to make you a better communicator. And the problem with that is that they're talking to the room as if everyone is the same. If you are a black woman, you are going to be received very differently for saying the same thing as a white man. And so to say to a black woman, you should do this thing, often that thing will be harmful for her, whereas it will be helpful for the white man. And so one of my focuses in the communication work I do is to make sure I'm delineating who I'm talking to. So I will say, for example, you know, vary your speed of your speech, vary your cadence from fast to slow and slow to fast. But women, you tend to speak more quickly. So don't go fast. Just go from neutral to slow. Right. And so, <laughs> I, you know, I make sure and there's a whole reason for that. But, there, you know, I make sure that I'm addressing every demographic or as much as I can. And then I also give concrete tips on how to communicate about your physicality and your voice. So you actually walk away with tools that you can use. And some of those tools are actually in my TEDx. So that's what my first big talk. And a lot of my talks come with a Q&A. So I'll do a 50 minute talk and I always warn people, there's going to be a lot of Q&A, even before the bathroom, there's going to be a lot of Q&A. <laughs> so so uh, last year when I went to Galveston, they told me, and I couldn't believe, I'm still, I'm really bragging right now. I'm so excited. But they said- You know what? Um, Go for it, girl. You I'm deserve it. I'm going to brag. <laughs> but they were like, you know, your Q&A went longer than, when I'm longer than Beta Rourke. And I was like, ha! <laughs> so excited. That's awesome. So that was, yeah, it was really fun. But and then the other talk I give is on mentoring and leading uh, populations that have less, with less power and privilege. So mentoring diverse and inclusive populations. And so I go into white fragility and I go into how to move your body in space to make sure that you're not intimidating and how to identify if someone else's body language is, is trying to be more submissive and, and checking yourself and wondering what message are you sending that you're making that, that they're inspired to behave that way. Um, so it's a, and I go into microaggressions and implicit bias and all of those things. And it's, it's about a 50 minute talk. It's a really, uh, people when, and then I also talk about cross-cultural communication. So, you know, someone from Germany is going to have a very different uh, way of speaking than somebody from say China, because mm -hmm. they have different ways and different approaches of speaking. And so in terms of how direct or indirect they should be and all these other rubrics. So that's my other big talk that I do. And then I do a lot of coaching as well. And a lot of my coaching actually is on interview coaching, believe it or not, because I, if you are not a white male, you are coming in at a disadvantage. And so there are all kinds of barriers in communication you have to overcome 
And so what I do is I work, I work with white men, but usually the white men I work with are introverts. I've never actually worked with an extroverted white man. man they seem to do just fine. Um, yeah. But everybody else um, can use a little help. And so I work with people mm-hmm. on making sure they nail their interview and on public speaking and on all these other um, things. So it's, I love it. And thank God I've been able to do it and, and kind of pivot my business since the pandemic, because if I wasn't able to do all my remote work, I would be in big trouble, big trouble. Mm-hmm. So that means that you understand, which we're going to come back to the, how COVID-19 has impacted you personally. I want to come back to that question, but I want to ask you this. You mentioned the micro microaggressions, microaggression. Yes. Do you feel that going back to white males that there there really is a such thing as white privilege? Oh yeah. I experience it every day as a white woman. I mean, I get stuff for being white. I get freedoms for being white. I get to do things that, you know, you don't get to do. What do you what is your opinion of like people who 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 stand up passionately saying that this is not true? You know, the way that I think about that is, is this. Uh, first of all, it's very hard to identify your white privilege, even if you're aware you have it. So my assistant, and I'm sure, uh, actually, I've asked him if I can use his name. He said yes. So my assistant, Tyree, was driving me somewhere once because I'd hurt my shoulder and I couldn't drive. And he was driving me from an area he often, a route he often drives back to my house because I had to pick up my car. So I said, hey, you live there anyway. You're coming into town. Can I hop a ride? So he was driving me uh, to my house and he was, he was going exactly the speed limit. And I finally, I turned to him and I, I was like, I always try not to, you know, get in people's business about how they drive, but I couldn't stand it anymore. And I said, you know, Tyree, <laughs> I was like, you can go seven miles over the speed limit and not get pulled over. You know, you know, I was like, oh, one exactly the speed limit. And he looked at me in this very kind, like, oh, my dear friend, <laughs> way and said, <laughs> you can. Right. And I and I went, oh, there's my white privilege. <laughs> mm-hmm. I just assume I can get in a car and go seven miles over the speed limit. And for white people, that's true. And he said, Eliza, I've memorized every single change in the speed limit, every sign. And I slow down about an eighth of a, to a quarter of a mile beforehand, because if I don't, I'll get pulled over every single time. Mm-hmm. And I thought, yeah, that's a tiny example of what I get just for being white. I get to go seven miles over the speed. I get places faster, you know? Yeah, that's, and, and there's so many more. Oh, and that's so a much nine, more. so much yes, more. I mean, that's so nothing, more. nothing. That's, that's like the tiniest example. But, and of course, I don't worry when my child leaves his house, he's going to be shot mm-hmm. for being black. You know I mean? They're just, there's just, and it just goes on and on and on. But the way that I describe, you ask, why do people feel this way? Why do they insist that there's no racism? And here's, here's what I, the way that I think about it, is that life is really hard. And everybody is walking up a really steep hill. And it is hard. And some people on the beginning of that, of that walk get issued a backpack of bricks. And one of, in the backpack might say race, or it might say poverty. Or it might say, you know, uh, ableism, maybe you're born with some sort of disability. And you're walking up that hill. And some people don't have a backpack. Some people are just cruising up, like able-bodied white men are just going up. And especially able-bodied white men from money. 
are just cruising. So let's say you're a working class white man. So you've got, or maybe you're a poor white man, you've got poverty backpack on and you're cruising up that hill and you're exhausted because you're carrying this backpack and you see this dude on a scooter go by you who's rich, a white guy who's rich. And you're like looking ahead of you watching all these people with scooters going ahead of you. And you're like, you're thinking to yourself, man, I'm having so hard. And then you hear a black person say, you know, I have it harder. And you, you're so tired that you don't turn around. You don't have the energy to turn around and say, holy crap, there are people behind me with five backpacks on mm-hmm. and I'm only wearing one. You're so exhausted by your own backpack that you don't turn around. And that's what empathy is. Empathy is the, the ability to turn around and, mm-hmm. and really listen to other people's stories. And so, and what I always tell people is, listen, let's say you're the first generation to go into your college and you're white. That puts you at a disadvantage from people who are from intergenerational college. You know, they've all gone to college. So you're where there with your black friend who's also the first generation to go to college and you guys are struggling and your black friends working really hard and you're the white guy and you're, you know, you're going up, you're going really hard. Eventually you both do. Okay. Let's say you go out and despite everything you get through. So he's wearing that, that backpack and the race back. You've got this other one, but he's working extra hard. So he's staying with you. You get to the job you have, you can then you suddenly have money and nobody knows anymore that you you were the first gen to go to college that's not really weighing you down you've learned all the things you need to learn in college about how to navigate that world you take off that backpack and let's say your friend who's black also takes off that backpack he still has the race backpack he carries he can never take that off Mm -hmm. and so that's what i sort of described to, to white people is don't think because people of color are saying that they have it hard that they're devaluing their experience, your experience. It's okay for you to say things are hard while knowing it's harder for someone else. That doesn't diminish your experience at all. And I think people think you're saying it's easy for me. And that's not what people are saying. They're just mm-hmm. saying, yeah, it's harder for me because <laughs> mm-hmm. I have an extra backpack. So that people can see that people can see when they see me your backpack. They might not be able to see that you're carrying that backpack, but they could see the race of, the black guy, the black woman. Okay. So I had a conversation with someone and it was, but, but, and I was trying to explain that when you keep saying, but you're basically wiping out everything that I just explained to you. It's like, you're basically like not validating it. You know, you're, you're basically, but, but, and, and the story went a little something like this, that someone had got a job because of their race, being that it was a black person got a job over this white person who was more qualified. And she says that it was due to affirmative action. And that is the story that she shares. There's seeds being planted in people's mind that certain people are getting jobs because of their race versus their qualifications and I'm like no it really doesn't work that way the reason why they created some of those programs was to make sure that certain races were not completely blocked right from from coming into the workforce right due to racism and also the day that that black people are equally represented in all areas of power in the workplace and all and, and they get the same pay we're not going to need affirmative action, but guess what? That doesn't exist. <laughs> right. So, you know, I mean, we're trying to equal out, we're trying to make the playing field more just. The other thing about that is that, but even so, what I always say to people is 
if you think of the barriers someone of color has had to go through to get to the, where they are, to compete with you on that job, they have had to overcome so much more. They've had to be better. I mean, you know, they've done research, obviously, that, that if you have two resumes and one is, is you know, Bob, one is Shantae, you know, and one is Sally, Shantae mm-hmm. is not going to be called. Right. Just by her name, if she has a, a traditionally African-American name. So if she's there competing against you, she is probably a better candidate because she's had to do so much more and work so much harder and be so much smarter to get where she is because she has not had the advantages. She's not, she has had to overcome so many barriers. It's like running a race and one person's doing obstacle courses and one person has none. And then the person, they go at the same time. Let's say they go over the finish line and one goes over just a little faster. You know, the person who's on the, you know, the race who, who didn't have the obstacles and they say, see, I should win because I'm a half a foot faster, but they shouldn't win because the other person just had to climb over a ladder and jump, jump through mud. <laughs> you know? I think that these types of conversations definitely need to happen a lot more for people to really understand. And I think it's hard. I can probably just a little bit understand like when a person has not been introduced to certain cultures or environments and, and, a, and does not have an understanding, they're not open to viewing other people's points of view. Because it's the, the analogy that you gave is, is perfect about they're not looking behind them to see like who's carrying five backpacks. And so mm-hmm. they're, they're only understanding that I had it tough as a kid. I went through this, I went through that and not looking at everything as a whole. And so I had this conversation recently with someone and it didn't really go. (laughs) It wasn't like a great conversation to have, you know, because I think those types of conversations, you know, bring frustration for people because I only had these conversations with people that were of the same race. And Mm -hmm. so once it happened outside of my own race, it was like, you can feel the, well, I went through this as a kid. I went through that. And it wasn't right. that no one, anyone was saying that your experience was not bad. We get mm-hmm. that, but we're mm-hmm. trying to help you understand the overall picture and the, and the tone of the, the United States, mm-hmm. you know, like how it's been and the way it still is in 2020, wow. because some of us still have the same experiences too, like where maybe they were molested. Maybe they did go through being raped. Maybe they did have those right. same experiences, but that doesn't, that's your personal experience that you had growing up. It is, it, it's not the same. It's not no. the same thing, you know, like as your family not being able to, you know, a parent get a job because of their race. You know what right. I mean? It's totally Absolutely. different. I mean, I think, you know, what I always tell people, especially when I'm talking to a white man, I will say to them, look, I know this is really hard for you to understand. And I'll say, listen, white men are the only group that have to use their imagination to imagine what it would be like for somebody to hold something against them that they can't change. Everybody else has some touch point. Everyone. So I have absolutely no idea what it's like to be black. Never will. The only way I'll have a clue is if people tell me about it and I believe them. And that's my job is to believe them. As a white person say, I believe you. (laughs) That is Mm -hmm. okay. You know, but they have to do a thought experiment. They have to literally play an imagination game to imagine that. So they have no touch point. 
So for all, for everyone else, there's at least a touch point. That being said, I think sometimes that touch point can go run in the opposite direction. So sometimes as a white woman, we'll say, well, because I'm a white woman and I have oppression, I understand what it's like to be black, which is absolutely completely insane and not, not insane, but it is absolutely wrong. And so then you get, white women will get very defensive when a woman of color says they're struggling because they say, well, so am I. It's that mm -hmm. same backpack idea. And it's like, well, yes, you are. But but you have white privilege and I don't, you know, so. Yeah, there's definitely a huge difference. The other thing is, I think, for white people, and I have a friend who teaches education, uh, Dr. Nia Nunn, who is absolutely brilliant. I want to shout out to her. She teaches education and she also talks about how it intersects with race. And I've learned from another friend who teaches this stuff that who knows a lot about it, that when white people go, when real, white people start to have any kind of real understanding of the dynamics of race in this country, they go through a process that is similar to what people go through when someone dies, which is they actually have to grieve the loss of the reality they thought they were living in and realize that the reality they are living in is not the reality for most people. It's a mm -hmm. different world. And so you actually grieve this like, oh my God, I thought the world was this way and it's not. So, and Nia calls that process once you start to get it, discovering letters, which I think is fascinating. So as if you can think of race as letters or any kind of ism as letters, when you're a little kid, you're in a car and you're, you're walking around and you're surrounded by letters and you don't know their letters. You see a stop sign, you don't know it's an S, but it's a stop sign, you know? Mm -hmm. And then one day, if you're lucky, someone teaches you to read and you go S, T, O, P, and you start telling your parents, oh my God, that's an S, it's an S, it's an S. And your parents, <laughs> and, you're, and so like the equivalent is, you know, you're as a white person, you bring up to your black friends and you're going, did you know there's racism? You know? Yeah. And, like, and they're like, yes, yes I, I did know that. I've actually been able to read that since I was a child. Um, <laughs> but, you know, and then you slowly start like stringing them together and you're, it's this mind blowing experience. And then eventually you kind of, just say, oh yeah, I live in a world where there are letters and there are signs and this says stop. And okay, so how am I going to navigate this world now that I understand this? And it's a huge process. And I think for many people going through, at least for me, it was an incredibly difficult process. And I'm, you know, I, I don't want to sound like I'm complaining because obviously as a white person, it's like, it's so hard to understand racism for me, you know? So I'm not saying it was harder than it is to be a person of color, but it was a real process for me. And it took, you really have to, you, you get humbled a lot. I mean, I, I, my favorite story that I tell people when I give my talk is about how to listen is I had said something that was dumb. I don't remember what it was, but it was dumb. And my friend, a friend of color said to me, my girlfriend, she said, Eliza, I need to stop you right there because you're being really white right now. And I said, <laughs> and, I, and, I, and my response was, no, that's not true. And I started to like explain why it wasn't that way. And then she said to me, and now you're being even whiter. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, so, and so then she said, listen, when a person of color is telling you about their experience, your only job is to shut up and listen. That's it. You don't need to explain you're not racist. You just, you, we're all racist. We all carry around internalized racism. Even black people do. And she said, it's like a cold. It's just some people are sicker than others. And, but you got to know you have that cold and you got to listen to people when they tell you about their experience and that's your job. And that's a hard thing because you have to really be in a place where you're willing to be humbled over and over because you don't get it. And that for me was part of the journey is to learn to shut up and listen, which is 
hard because I'm a teacher and I love to teach and talk. (laughs) (laughs) So, but that is it. And I think that's what I always tell white people is like, listen, you don't have to be right. You don't have to not be racist. Just, it's okay. We live in a racist society. We breathe the air. We we are sexist. We are racist. The question is, what are you going to do now that you know that? And how are you going to try to make things better? So you are actually a self-proclaimed sci-fi geek? I'm such a nerd. I'm the biggest nerd on the planet. (laughs) I'm such a nerd. Are you able to share your analogy between the matrix and and the communication? Yeah, yeah. So, um, (laughs) well, if you don't know the matrix, you won't understand. But uh, (laughs) Well, so basically, we're all in the matrix. Yes, and we are. We, yeah, we're all in the matrix, and this is rude of, of me as a as a host to to butt in, but I have to share this. No, please. It drives me insane when people say "escape the matrix." The people perceive it as go live in the middle of nowhere <laughs> with no communication. Someone told me a story about someone that did that, and they're living in the middle of nowhere, no cell phone, nothing, and they have no connection. Their hair has grown so long, it's down almost to her knees, you know. And, oh, wow. Yeah, and just out in the middle of nowhere, living in like a van or something with other people, disconnected from the matrix, matrix completely. And so, is it, can may I ask, is this a white woman or a woman of color? Or Oh, no, it, it's a white woman. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think it's the escape of that. You're not really escaping, right? I mean, you're not, you're just living in the matrix and trying to ignore it exists. And you're not really doing anything to help the crazy computer people, (laughs) the agents. (laughs) 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 To take the analogy further. (laughs) No, yeah, that is, that's an interesting way of dealing with, I mean, to me, I I know somebody who said, uh, and they have a lot of privilege and they said, I just can't stand this country anymore. I want to, I want to move to uh, this other country. And I thought and I said you know that's really a privileged position because if people with power and privilege who care all leave who does that leave here who's left to fight for the people who who are more vulnerable you know so but that's just my I don't know that's my thought on it but but I mean I think there are times where you want to cut and run but I think the people who really should cut and run are the people who are the most in danger if they possibly can not the people who are the least in danger they should stay until they really can't anymore but anyway in terms of Neo um, the whole idea that I have is, you know, he was vulnerable when he didn't fully understand the coding and communication is the coding. So once for me, so once he saw that HTML on the wall at the end, he could stop bullets. He could mm-hmm. stop bullets because he, he could, he understood the matrix and he was in it. He could fly. And I think, you know, when I work with people, when I do my talks, I'll get letters and emails from people saying, this is completely emails, actually not letters and <laughs> messages, nobody letters anymore, but you know, <laughs> saying, saying, you know, this was so transformative for me. I had no idea what I didn't understand until I understood it. And now it has transformed my life because I can predict people's behavior and I can predict and I can be ready for how I'm going to handle it. And so that's why I love teaching communication is it's just so unbelievably empowering. Once you learn these, these strategies, you are more powerful and you're more ready to deal with any, you know, almost anything life throws at you because everything we do when we are with another human being or writing a letter or an email 
or post it on Facebook is communication. That's we, it's the matrix is all around us. Mm -hmm. I'm a nerd. (laughs) (laughs) You're absolutely an amazing nerd. If that's what you are. (laughs) What do you, when people say escape the matrix, is that what you think they're saying overall, like to leave and just go in the middle of nowhere? Or you think that people are like misunderstanding that? I don't know. That's just so weird to me. I don't even really know. I, I guess there's a thing of, you know, to escape society or whatever. And, and I guess that is an out to just leave. But to me, I don't know. I've always believed that you want to leave the world just if you can, just a tiny, teeny bit better than you found it. And if you escape the matrix, you can't do that. So for me, that just doesn't really jive with my belief system. But there are people who could argue that if they're trying to have a low impact on the environment, they're going to go out in the country and have a zero carbon footprint or whatever, and more power to them. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know their specific belief, but I I feel like if you have the ability to try to engage and make some sort of a difference, you, you should probably try. And that doesn't necessarily mean you have to do social justice work. It can just mean, you know, for me, I teach acting. And I try to help people step into their power in that way and, and explore their creativity. And I give these talks and, and it's about communication. And it's fun. It's not like I'm running for office. So there are a million different ways that you can make a difference. And I think it's even you're making a difference with your program. It's finding the thing you're good at and you love and making an impact that way. And I think that's, to me, that's sort of an important important part of my life so escaping to me just seems kind of like with everything going on right now you're gonna escape really because we need you <laughs> right. exactly. you care that much we need you <laughs> in the fight <laughs> exactly you said you teach acting for what plays movies all of that stuff like that all of that stuff so yeah I I went I was a political science major and then I went to NYU law school my whole goal is to get into a top five law school and I did I got an NYU and then I did my first year of law and I got a scholarship to do whatever I wanted. And I realized I did all these interviews and I realized, wow, I could do any of this and I don't want to do any of it. <laughs> like, wow. <laughs> I, and so I took a semester, I really didn't like the adversarial system. So I took a semester off and then I just never went back and I studied something called the Sanford Meisner technique, which is a technique that teaches people how to pick up on micro behaviors and identify their own emotional life. And so I acted in New York for a while. Then I went to Boston and I taught. And I remember when I got the job, I thought, um, you know, well, this is, this is about just going for it, right? I, this, is, this, is, this is back in the day. Way, this was way back in the day when there was no internet because I'm much older than you. <laughs> so uh, there was no internet. So I called the operator like us old people used to do. And I said, can you connect me to anything that says actor? And they said, the guy said, well, we have an actor's workshop from Boston. And I said, great, connect me. So he connected me and I called and I said, yeah, I have no idea how to work in Boston. You're the first thing I can find. <laughs> um, and, and what do I do? I just finished the two-year Meisner program in New York. And he said, did you say you're finished the two-year Meisner program? And I said, yeah. And he said, you're not going to believe this, but our Meisner instructor just had to leave for a gig out of the blue and we're desperate. We need a Meisner teacher. Can you come in for an interview? And I said, yes, I can. So I went in for the interview and I thought, and he hired me and I thought, well, I'll do this for a little while. 
his teaching is for losers who don't know how to do it themselves. <laughs> and so every time you say something, they like, they have the universe is like, get, get ready to be humbled. Um, so, so I started teaching and about a weekend, I thought, this is, this is why I'm on this planet is to teach. And mm. so I started teaching. I taught there for three years. And then I went back home to Ithaca and I started, I decided to open a Meisner studio and everybody said, you're insane. It's a two-year program and it's for training professional actors. No one's going to take it. You know, I kept, I, my angel is one of my heroes and she says, you know, want me to do something, tell me I can't do it or something to that effect. So I, I thought, well, now I'm really doing it. And I started it and it's been thriving ever since. Unfortunately, just for the first time ever, I had to close down because of the, uh, because of the pandemic. But we have people all over the world who have become famous actors. One of our actors, Asia Dillon, just appeared in the latest John Wick movie. Um, just all, you know, and there we have people who, some of the people come because they want to become better public speakers. And I use a lot of the techniques when I teach communication and public speaking. Some of them want to do local theater and some of them go on to become famous actors and directors and filmmakers and film actors and stage actors. So that's my passion project. So when... I don't make any money doing it because I give out a lot of scholarships and I pay my two instructors, but I love it. And that's what I do when I'm not traveling for my speaking job. So, and I have wow. some amazing TAs, really amazing, including Tyree, who I want to shout out to, and Marissa, who I want to shout out to, and Kieran, who also steps in. And I've had incredible brilliant uh, people over the years. And so they kind of step in when I'm traveling for work. And I, it's a huge part of what, how I integrate. It's why I think I do the communication work pretty well is that I've spent my life learning how someone's body and voice moves in space is going and, and, and speaks, how someone's body moves in space and how someone speaks impacts who they, how people receive them. Because that's mm -hmm. really all acting and teaching is. And so that's, that's a big part of how I integrate that into my work. So my work is this yummy, delicious combination that I love of nerdy political science stuff about, um, you know, demographics and isms with the acting and physicality and voice and sort of combined. Wow, that's awesome. And wh where is it located? We are located in Ithaca, New York, although right now, uh, and people travel for upwards of three hours round trip to study with us twice a week, which is so cool. And my two instructors, Katie Stallone and David Kosak, who I also want to shout out to, who are brilliant and incredible. And Katie is my co-director now of the workshop, which I needed once of my speaking engagements picked up. And she's, a, she's just incredible. They're both incredible. David has had a film featured in the New York Times. But right now, actually, I just started working with people remotely. I was just going to ask that stuff. question. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So I just started working with people actually coaching remotely. So instead of doing whole classes, which is really impossible with this technique, people have started to contact me about specific parts of the technique. So right now I'm actually working with people uh, on, the on the semester that I developed myself, which is the emotional preparation semester. Meisner tells you to do emotional preparation, doesn't teach you how to do it. And I developed an entire semester on how to prepare emotionally. And people want to know how to do that so they don't go into meetings nervous or they don't give talks with, you know, they want to feel confident during a talk or, or anything like that. And it teaches you how to temporarily switch your emotional life. And mm -hmm. so I've been doing that remotely and it's been really fun because I miss, I miss that so much. And so now I, now I get to do it with people remotely, which is awesome. Wow, that is awesome. I love that you were able to shift it and know how to adapt in this crazy time of COVID-19. Oh my gosh. 
Yeah. Can you share with me, like, what is a micro behavior? A micro behavior? Well, we're getting this data from people all the time when we talk to them. And so when we're looking at someone, we're reading their face. And some people are better at that than others. And some people do it intuitively and some people barely can do it. So uh, I've actually worked with people on the autism scale who've come to me because I need to actually say on bigger behaviors, like when someone does this big expression, that means this, Mm -hmm. you know, because they have a little bit of a harder time sometimes picking up on that. Um, But a micro behavior is just the, instead of like a big, big, huge meta behavior where someone says, I think you're a jerk, you know, they Mm -hmm. might just flick their eyes at you and you say, oh, and you feel it. And Mm -hmm. so the way that I describe it is, we ignore our responses to those feelings. And in some ways it's survival. So if you're walking down the street and somebody gives you a nasty look, you, your gut says, ouch. And then you fly into your head really fast and you say, forget that person. They don't know me. I don't need Mm -hmm. to worry about them. And then your head goes back down and says, it's okay, gut. And you keep walking. And it goes, it happens so fast that you don't even register. You did it, but you did it. What Meisner teaches you to do is to identify that feeling in that moment. And so you actually identify what you saw in that person and you identify the feeling it elicited. And what that does is it just heightens all of your communication because you become kind of a communication neo <laughs> matrix. You see the HTML. <laughs> and so it, it, it helps. And I think for women, especially, we are so taught to re- deny our reality. And so we are taught that what is happening to us is not real. And it's happened with people of color as well, of course. Um, you know, no, I wasn't being racist or I wasn't being sexist. But women, you know, we're taught that right is wrong and black is white. And, you know, the example I like to give is when I was little and it's in, I just talked about it in my, in a uh, thing that I actually am releasing on YouTube next week, my series Women Amplified. But when we were, when we are little, it, we, a little girl, I remember being on, well, here, here's the story. I'm, I'm rambling, but here's the story. I'm on the front porch. <laughs> There's a little boy who I love. He's, he's in third grade and I'm sure he's going to marry me. I was so obsessed with him, Isaiah. And we'll call him Isaiah. And he, he looks at me one day and I never thought I was very pretty. And he looks at me and he says, Eliza, you're so pretty. And then he hauls off and punches me in the arm. So I'm like, what is this? Long story. I start hauling to his mom's house. I'm hauling, hauling, hauling. I get there. She's standing on the front porch. Bema's there. And I say, she's like, Eliza, what's wrong? And I say, Isaiah hit me. And he catches up with me and he says, she says, is this true, Isaiah? And he goes, yeah. And he looks down and he's looking upset. And she looks at me and she smiles and she says, oh, Eliza, don't worry. He hit you because he likes you. <laughs> and so, right uh-huh. I mean, a lot of women have that story he hit you because he liked you and then she started comforting him and she never asked about my shoulder I start comforting him so what's the message that I get well, the message is it's not okay to be hit unless you are hit by a boy who likes you mm-hmm. you know and boy gets the message is it's not okay to hit a woman unless you like her So then when someone, if we have any kind of trauma and somebody hits us when we're adults, we have been trained that that is okay. Even though that little girl in us, that gut says, no, that's not okay. Mm -hmm. And so we ignore it. And, but deep down, there's still that little girl who says, nah, I should run to the mom's house and get him grounded for life. 
And so, <laughs> right, exactly. exactly. Right? So we, so by identifying what you're feeling in a deep way, you start to learn where your compass is again, and you start to be able to identify this isn't right. Even though you've been trained by society to take it, whatever that it may be. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's good. That's good stuff. What's the name of your YouTube channel? It's just Eliza Van Court, and I just started it. It's in its babyhood. So literally weeks ago, uh, mm-hmm. I, I started it because I have a friend. Well, two reasons. One is I have a friend in the Bronx, and she has lo- she was had a ton of friends that she'd lost to the virus. And she had been talking about how her friends, who are almost all people of color, had could not get access to doctors. And in mm. fact, her partner almost died in their house. And since then, I think she's lost 15 people in her life. 15 wow. people. Oh my God. And so I thought this story needs to be told. And then I talked to the woman who I'm going to, inter- who I interviewed and who's going to be on this Tuesday at 1 p.m. And I said, she said, you know, history is written by the people with the swords and the guns and not the people carrying babies in baskets. Mm-hmm. And she said, we need to tell our stories. Maybe if we tell our stories, then we can write some history too. And so I thought, yeah, so I thought, I really want to do something. And it felt weird to make it all about me. So I thought, I know one of the chapters in my book is about how we should amplify the voices of women. And so I thought instead of just making it about me, 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 and there will be times where I talk about communication tips, I have a thing on how not to be interrupted and things like that. Mm -hmm. But I will also talk about how to amplify the voices. So I have a series called Women Amplified where I get the stories of women that aren't told and I put them out there. So Liz was the first person. This woman, Yael, was the second. Unfortunately, YouTube dinged me on that one because she talked about postpartum depression and a suicide attempt, so they made it restricted. So that one didn't do so well. Um, But that is a beautiful, uplifting story, actually. But she got dinged. And then the next one is by this woman who's, equally as amazing as Liz, who is a nurse and taught nursing. And what and she talks about how basically nursing is like a microcosm of what women go through in the world. And it's so powerful and incredible. And she's the one who said maybe we can write some history too. So between Liz and Melissa, those are the two women that inspired me to start that that series, which I've now started on YouTube. So wow. definitely watch it and subscribe. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And and you guys, we got to remember to hit that bell because otherwise we don't get notification. Right? Yes. Hit the bell. Hit the bell, okay, you I guys. Subscribed. <laughs> I subscribed to you, but I didn't hit the bell. So this is inspiring me to go back and hit the oh. bell. <laughs> so subscribe yeah. to Shantae as well. Definitely. Right. You know, subscribe to Authentic Talk, you know? Yes. Well, you know what? I love what you're doing. I'm excited about your book coming out and I definitely will support you and subscribe to the channel. And I think it's an awesome idea to build that platform. It's a good idea. It's like, you you know, uh, I know that you mentioned that COVID-19 impacted your, the school and, and I, I think they're starting to open things back up. And so you guys might get back rolling the ball again real soon there not really because what we do is in a very enclosed space and we're we're right up in each other's faces and we yell at each other and we cry and we make a lot of sounds and you know it's a packed room so we really we've decided just for the safety of our students 
to put it off until there's a therapy or a cure because it's just not safe. Um, and it's, it's a huge loss. It's a huge loss. Luckily our, I, our students are incredible. They're so warm and loving and loyal. Not one person asked for a refund, even though we stopped mid semester, we are going to transfer everybody's tuition over, but still it was just so moving and we're zooming with them, um, pretty frequently. And so we're keeping that connection, uh, with each other, which is just really beautiful and just talking, just talking mm-hmm. about what's going on. So it's really special, but yeah, it's been a lot of innovating. I mean, for me, that has innov- impacted me emotionally, but not financially because I never made any money doing it anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually started a Patreon account when it all started and my students came through and helped me uh, get through the first couple of weeks with my Patreon account, which is incredible. So really, really moving. I have several different tiers. And so if you do a lower tier, you can just get early release of videos and some articles and then all the way up to a higher tier where I can give one-on-ones and I also give little teaching seminars and things like that. There's a big range of how much people can do. And most people take the lower tier or the middle tier and you know, you get a signed copy of my book for free if you sign up. And there's all these different things. Back in the day, you'd have some rich dude, usually a dude, who would say, hey, I like this artist. I'm going to give them a bajillion dollars so they can make art and create. We don't have that anymore so much. So Patreon is like a crowdsourcing of that, where you can get a bunch of people who support your work. And they say, we think what you're doing, you should be paid for. And here is, I'm going to subscribe to you for $10 a month just to support what you're doing. And my students did that for me. And you would be perfect for that because you're doing such a service that, that I, I would sign up for $10 a month to hear all your stuff keep going. So <laughs> just an idea. Just, yeah, it's, it's an idea. Between this Call and the me. YouTube, oh, I, you know. I know, I know. I, I don't but know. <laughs> you can just do the $10 version that's just like support my work. Mm-hmm. If you want to know more about, just support my work. I, if you want, I'll, I'll, give, I'll, I'll give you some advice after we stop. <laughs> yeah. Hey, that's a, it's an idea. I, I, as soon as I, you know, you reached out to me, I looked up what you were doing and I thought this woman's incredible. It would be really an honor. Oh, to thank you. Her. That's so kind of you. Yeah. If people wanted to find you, where can they find you? Do you have a website? Okay. Yes, they can go to elizavancourt.com and everybody misspells court. So I'm going to spell that for you. There's no U in court. It's not like the court system. So it's E-L-I-Z-A-V-A-N-C-O-R-T.com. So elizavancourt.com, but there's no U in court. And you can click the subscribe button and you actually get a free download of six ways to claim space for busy women. So six little quick little tips on claiming space, which actually are sort of the skeleton of my book. And you'll also just be kept up to date with things and occasionally get discounts and things like that. So it's just a good way to stay current. I solemnly swear I never spam. At most, you might get an email once a month saying, hey, this cool thing happened. But that's like, for example, people will get a link to this. It's not like I'm going to, I'll never share your name or do anything obnoxious like that. All right, you guys, you heard it from the source. It's pretty much not going to be sold. Yes, it's absolutely not going to be sold. It's just a way to stay current with what I'm doing and Mm -hmm. occasionally get goodies like little PDFs and things like that. And then the YouTube channel is called Eliza Van Court also. Yep. That's also Eliza Van Court. Please subscribe and ring the bell. (laughs) (laughs) Hit that bell. (laughs) Hit that bell. (laughs)
Once we resume back to the new norm, uh, what do you anticipate? Do you think that you're going to start doing speaking engagements again, like just even locally here in the States? Yeah, I mean, I've been really fortunate. Every place that I work, almost every place I work has contacted me and said, we're so sorry, we can't use you next year. We feel terrible, but please contact me back at this time because we are the top of our list for bringing you back when it happens. So, or they say we're trying to work out an online thing for a reduced price. My clients are just incredible. And I, I feel really blessed in that way. I'm hoping that, you know, it, it starts up again. The, the issue that I have is a lot of my work is in academia. Most of academia has hiring freezes right now. So I'm really trying to branch out into other, you know, business and other places. And I have a speakers bureau, which I should have mentioned, which is the Bright Sight Group. Dot com and you can also see information information on that the bright site group yep the bright like, site group like b-r-i-g-h-t or b-r-i-t-e b-r-i-g-h-t speakers.com and if you go there you will find all kinds of speakers and you can also put bright site and eliza van court and they'll take you there so you can go through them but they're also being pretty loose now about letting me book my own gigs because they know we're in a crazy time so, and I'm giving people reduced prices because I know a lot of people just can't do what they used to do. Okay. Do you foresee yourself doing things like where you're going into employers, where you're doing Zoom, where you guys somehow reach out to various companies that are in different states like California, Arizona, Nevada? The communication piece is something that everybody can use. I actually do do some of that already, and I'm trying to do more. I actually, somebody who I worked with a while back for this organization that helps empower farmers to communicate better about what they do, Con now works for Govern for America, and they, she, this woman, uh, Raquel, who I absolutely love, and Raquel called me, and she's amazing, Raquel Gonzalez. I, I love her, and she has done such incredible work over the, just watching her star rise has been magical. But she contacted me and said that they have a bunch of people that are trying to train to go out and do, to learn how to basically go and be young people bringing new blood into public service. So they have a two-year fellowship and I'm going to be doing a seminar for them remotely. So I'm starting to do, get more and more gigs like that where I'm doing things. I think I'm working on them on, with public speaking and, el and elevator pitches. So I'm, I'm doing more stuff like that. And obviously, the more that I do, the better. So if you have an organization or a business, um, I do a lot of that stuff. And I, would, I am looking to branch into that as academia now is probably going to be frozen for, for a while. And so, yeah, absolutely. Well, I think I might. <laughs> that would be great. Yeah, I think I might, awesome. you know. So, yeah. Well, I integrate diversity into my communication work. Because oh, I think okay. you can't talk about, some of my stuff is straight up inclusion, equity, and diversity, which mm -hmm. is like how to mentor the, and lead populations, uh, diverse populations. But my communication work, I just intersect, I just put it in an intersectional way because you can't talk about communication without talking about power and privilege because half of communication has to do with how much power and privilege somebody has when you talk to them. So you just have to. So I integrate that throughout. That's awesome. Do I do love it. Thank you so much for having me. You are amazing and wonderful. And I feel really honored to have been on your show. No, thank you. Really. Thank you for coming on. 
Wow, that was a great conversation that I had with Eliza that I really wasn't expecting to have. I want to let you guys know that she is coming back at the end of the show and will be leaving us with a few tips. The show was recorded long before the death of George Floyd and before the protests happened in the United States as well as around the world. It goes to show you that these conversations are relevant, you guys, and are conversations that need to be had. Change is starting to happen. We have a long way to go due to the beliefs and behaviors that have been taught and learned for hundreds of years. Education is key with these types of situations such as racism. We are stronger together than apart. And as I stated before, in a spiritual world, racism doesn't even exist. It's about getting our hearts right, getting our minds right, and change is inevitable. We have to keep coming together as we've seen in the protests, all different races coming together, people all around the world coming together. We must continue this, have unity in order for us to see real change. You guys, here's Eliza with those tips as promised. I'm just really happy that you have me on the show and I'm inspired to sort of share this. Normally you would have to sign up to get all of it, but I'm just gonna give you a little overview. Oh, so thank you. Um, and thank you so much, Shande. You're amazing. So you're amazing. Um, <laughs> my dad would say it's a mutual admiration society. <laughs> so okay, so here are the six steps for uh, every woman striving to claim space. Number one, be visible. Being invisible isn't safe, and you should bow to no one, even when it scares you. Speak your truth and be visible. So that, that is the first the first point for claiming space. Secondly, have an inclusive mindset. Claim space with women of all backgrounds. Approach work and life with an open mind and heart. Listen to, believe, and advocate for other women. When we rise together, we rise farther. Body and voice. Claim physical space with your voice and your physicality. Work to cultivate great posture. Speak with confidence. Be sure that the story that your body and your voice is telling clearly projects the story that you want to tell. Shut it down. Claim space by insisting on being emotionally safe in any space. Interruptions, mansplaining, microaggressions, and other behavior need not be tolerated. And if you have to, find an ally because it's not always safe to do it by yourself, but shut them down. Network now. When we claim space together, we amplify each other. So attend to your friendships, cultivate professional relationships with other women, lean on other women, help other women, create and nurture your own powerful old girls network. And Shante, now we are um, And then finally, <laughs> stop kryptonite. There's my nerdy self coming out. Don't seed space. Look carefully at your past. Are you susceptible to dangerous, toxic relationships? Do you have imposter syndrome? Understand what brings you to your knees and work to never self-sabotage again. So go out there and claim some space. I love it. Thank you so much for sharing. Eliza, tell us about the book again. Spring of 2021, and it is coming out by Barrett Kohler, will be the organization that is publishing it, the publishing house. And if you go to my website, you can subscribe and you'll know exactly when it is coming out. And again, the title of it is A Woman's Guide to Claiming Space, Stand Tall, Raise Your Voice, Be Heard and just subscribe to my website and you'll get notifications when it's coming out. And if you do Patreon, if you feel like doing that, you'll get a free signed copy as well. Wow, that's good stuff. I love it. 
A Woman's Guide to Claiming Space. Stand tall, raise your voice, be heard. Yay. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. I, I support you. I support you, sis. I got Thank you, girl. Got <laughs> Thank you. I'm oh, well, glad we connected. I'm I sure know. we're going to stay connected. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I enjoyed talking with you. It's been so nice, and you're welcome to come back on Authentic Talks anytime. You guys, be sure to check the show notes for all the information on Eliza Van Court. I'm excited to announce that we are now uploading two shows per week, and that will be on Mondays and Fridays. Please be sure to subscribe to this show that way you don't have to miss an episode thank you all so much for tuning in i'm shantae with authentic talks and i said she said you know history is written by the people with the swords and the guns and not the people carrying babies and baskets Mm -hmm. and she said we need to tell our stories maybe if we tell our stories then we can write some history too